Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 33 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. We invite those who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming events can be found online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Michael Brune is the executive director of the Sierra Club. He grew up in New Jersey, exploring the beaches and waters along its shore, and it was there that his concern for nature and the environment first took root. After graduating with degrees in economics and finance from Westchester University in Pennsylvania, he worked for Greenpeace, where he learned grassroots organizing and campaigning. He moved from Greenpeace to the Rainforest Action Network and served for four years as its executive director. In 2010, he came to the Sierra Club, and under his leadership, the organization has grown to more than two million supporters. He has spearheaded one of the Sierra Club's most successful programs, the Beyond Coal Campaign, which is committed to phasing out coal energy in the U.S. and replacing it with a clean energy economy. He joins us today to provide deeper insight into the challenges all concerned citizens face in protecting the wild places. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Michael Broom. All right, thank you, Tim. Good afternoon, everybody. I have to say it is an honor, it's a privilege to be here with all of you, particularly in such a, a beautiful, a beautiful place. I'm here today to talk about wilderness and protecting our wild America. I'm also here to talk a little bit about climate change, including the proposed expansion of the Alberta Clipper Pipeline. And mostly I'm here to talk about what we can do together to make a real difference. So I just want to thank everybody for coming out here today, and I also want to thank everybody out in Radioland for listening in. I think I should start with a little bit of a story. So there I was. It was a hot, very hot summer day, July 1985. We were in Arizona. I was stuffed into a small minivan with my two older sisters, my younger brother, my parents, and uh, we were, having been raised on the New Jersey shore, we were taking our first family trip to the great American West. And we were driving from Los Angeles to the Grand Canyon. And we were driving through the Mojave Desert. I had never seen weather, never felt weather that hot before. It's about 110 degrees on the outside. And on the inside, as I think I mentioned, I was with my siblings <laughs> on a long drive in a small minivan. And so somewhere along the way, I finally fell asleep. And I woke up as we pulled into the parking lot, uh, one of the parking lots right off the edge of the rim of the Grand Canyon. And I still remember today, vividly, getting out of the car, feeling the hot air, I remember I was bickering with my younger brother, and I was rubbing my eyes, and I turned around, boom, there was the Grand Canyon. And it was like nothing I had ever seen, nothing I'd ever even imagined. Nine decades before I saw the Grand Canyon from a minivan, John Muir, the Sierra Club's founder, saw the same exact view from a steam train, and he wrote, you come suddenly and without warning upon the abrupt edge of a gigantic sunken landscape of the wildest, most multitudinous features. He said it was impossible to describe. And then, being John Muir, he continued for 8,000 words <laughs> of a magazine story to do just that. He was compelled to describe for his readers, most of whom who had never been 
west of the Mississippi. Or, who knows, maybe he was just getting paid by the word. <laughs> but in any case, I think John Muir had it right when he said that the Grand Canyon can't be captured by any painting, can't really be captured by any words. And so raise your hands. Has anybody here ever had this experience in the Grand Canyon or any wilderness area where you really can't describe how magical it feels? Of course. And let me ask you, after you've spent a week or two, or maybe just a couple days, or after you've spent an afternoon in a park, do you ever come back and wish you had spent that time on email instead? <laughs> Nobody? Maybe one person. You know, I think very few of us, we, very few of us look back at the end of the year, or over the holidays, and when we look back, we say, you know, I wish I spent more time in meetings. I really need more conference calls in my life. Instead, the memories that we cherish over time are with our family, with our friends, and a lot of times, it's out in nature. Times when you can close your eyes and you can hear the water lapping against your kayak. These are the memories that stick with us. And as we know, not everybody views nature at all in this way. Rather, they may have experiences like this, but they put a higher premium on the resources that can be extracted from our wild places, rather than the value, economic, spiritual, to be realized from their protection. But for me, the value of wild places, to borrow a phrase from Thomas Jefferson, is self-evident. It's been self-evident since the day at the Grand Canyon, but as Tim was mentioning, since I grew up on the beach in New Jersey, and I think that it's this way for many Americans. Last year, during the government shutdown, you'll recall the outrage that people felt all across the country about national parks being shut down. We were planning a trip to southeastern Utah to the national park, and I remember describing to our nine-year-old daughter why the park was shut down. And I remember her outrage. There was a poll last year that found that 70% of American voters say it's very important for the federal government to permanently protect and conserve public lands for future generations. It's a significant number. It's hard for 70% of Americans today to agree on almost anything. And it's important to remember that it wasn't always this way. When Muir saw the Grand Canyon, it was unprotected. And just like the first people who saw the giant sequoias, they were in a similar way awestruck right before they started chopping them down. And when you look at the American history of protecting wild places, this is a recurring theme. Almost every time, it's an uphill battle. This is often the story of activism. That many of the challenges that we face 100 years ago are very similar to the challenges that we face today. And even in the Grand Canyon, mining companies still want to dig in the Grand Canyon watershed. This time, they're searching for uranium. And many politicians continue to drag their feet when it comes to lands protection. Earlier this month, Congress designated 32,500 acres of new wilderness along the Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore in Michigan. This was the first lands protection bill to be passed in more than five years. But it's also important to say that a lot of things have gotten better, and we all much of that progress to the passing of one landmark law. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the enactment of the Wilderness Act, which was passed in 1964. That's the same year as Freedom Summer. It's the same year that the Civil Rights Act was passed. And as was true and is true with civil rights, land protection in the America of 50 years ago still had a very long way to go. And here's where we used to be. 50 years ago, our national forests were being clear-cut all across the country for timber without any regard for sustainability. In fact, the government offered huge subsidies to logging companies, any timber company that wanted to log in national forests. And so as a result, almost all of the timber sales, all of this clear-cut logging, almost all of it in ancient, intact, old-growth forests actually cost taxpayers money. We were paying to convert ancient trees into two-by-fours. 
and the public lands that were administered by the Bureau of Land Management were in what was called disposal status, officially called disposal status. They were explicitly being held until they could be liquidated and sold off to exploiters. They were mismanaged primarily to promote mining and livestock grazing. In fact, the BLM was called by a lot of people the Bureau of Livestock and Mining. And it's also important to note that 50 years ago, even our national parks were not safe. This was, in fact, the case almost ever since the national parks were created, ever since San Francisco flooded Yosemite National Park's Hetch Hetchy Valley to create a reservoir. In the decade, in the 10 years before the Wilderness Act was passed, the parks were still under assault by developers, water developers in particular, and the Bureau of Reclamation throughout the West. The Sierra Club and many other groups fought national campaigns to keep dams from being built in Dinosaur National Monument and also within the Grand Canyon. And the passage of the Wilderness Act didn't change anything overnight, but it provided a framework for protection. What it did is it basically moved the needle from next to impossible to really, really difficult to get wilderness protected. But it, it actually was a watershed moment for wilderness, and it was the beginning of a long, slow, and steady march towards permanent protection. And on the whole, it's been a very successful march. When the act was passed, the original wilderness areas that were established covered 9.1 million acres, most of it in the west at the highest peaks, where there was hardly any actual threat of development. Today, the National Wilderness Preservation System includes 110 million acres in 757 wilderness areas from coast to coast, stretching from the Brooks Range in northern Alaska to the islands off of Cape Cod to the great deserts of the southwest, volcanoes of Hawaii, the cloud forests of Puerto Rico, and of course the thousand pristine lakes and streams and 1,500 miles of canoe routes of your Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, which is the most visited wilderness area in the country. But what's remarkable and what's especially worth celebrating this year is that every one of those 757 wilderness areas was championed by people like us, citizen activists, who may not have their name on the wilderness area, who may not have been there for the signing ceremony, who may not have gotten awards when the area was protected, who may not have been uh, in the newspaper when the announcement was made, who may not have plaques in their honor or certificates hanging on their walls, but they were no less essential to the fight. These are people, everyday Americans like you and me, who had busy lives, many of them have had kids or grandkids, and yet they somehow found time early in the morning, late at night, on the weekends, to try to advocate for something larger than themselves, to try to create a legacy that they could tell their kids and their grandkids about, that they could take their kids and their grandkids to. These are people who loved their particular prized piece of earth, and they were determined that it wouldn't be exploited and destroyed for private profit. These are people, wilderness champions, that often get taken for granted, but they're the reason why we've been successful. A few weeks ago, I received a letter from one of these champions after he read a column that I wrote for Sierra Magazine about the history of the Sierra Club's work on creating Redwood National Park. And he remembered with pride how he drove up from the San Francisco Bay Area and met with local community members for years, and how eventually after listening carefully to their concerns, what they valued the most, he was able to convince them of the value, again, economic and otherwise, in protecting those areas. But he also talked about how when he came home or when he would got back to his car, he would find it riddled with buckshot. His tires were slashed. And again, this is true of much of activism, not just for wilderness protection, but people who are working today against mountaintop removal coal mining, the Keystone XL pipeline, who are working to resist fracking. And the, it's the selflessness and the sacrifice of citizens 
that make possible an enduring legacy for wilderness protection specifically and environmental protection more generally. Again, most of us don't know the names of a lot of these individuals, but the gifts that they're giving us lasts an eternity. And so this brings me to the wilderness issues that we're facing today, 50 years after the passage of the Wilderness Act, because our long march is not even close to being finished. We still face significant challenges, challenges that were unimaginable 50 years ago. The first of these concerns has to do with the benefits of wild places, and more specifically, how we can be sure that everyone has the opportunity to experience these benefits. Wild places are, of course, they're essential to the protection of countless species, but we're not, we're not saving them simply because humans enjoy them. It's also true that while parks and wilderness areas are open to everybody, remote wilderness areas today are predominantly, but not exclusively, enjoyed by white folks, particularly people who are upper middle or upper middle class. But it's important to know that the love of nature is shared by all cultures and all income levels. In fact, polls have shown, just as an example, that Latinos are even more supportive of environmental protection than their white neighbors are. But all too frequently, there are barriers that make it more difficult for urban, low-income, and people of color to experience nature and wilderness. And so it's incumbent upon wilderness advocates to join with our natural allies to remove these barriers and to form a more powerful partnership to protect wilderness and wildness for everybody. This won't only provide a healthy and renewing nature experience for all Americans, but it will broaden and deepen the movement of those demanding more protection for wild places and for action on climate change. So I want to just highlight a few ways in which the Sierra Club is looking at this challenge. First, our Sierra Club Outdoors program works with local partners to take more than 13,000 urban youth out on hikes, overnights, and river trips every year. Local Sierra Club chapters, like our North Star chapter here in Minnesota, offer 12,000 free outings almost every weekend that are open to everybody as a way to make nature more accessible. Each year, more than, the Sierra Club takes more than 250,000 people out into wilderness. And our, our, the Sierra Club's Our Wild America program deploys Spanish-speaking Spanish organizers and leaders in urban areas with large Latino populations to promote wildland protection. We also run a military families and veterans initiative that in the past several years has helped more than 50,000 veterans and their families experience nature and to heal the mental and physical wounds of war and military service. There's another way to make nature accessible to a greater percentage of Americans, and that's by finding and protecting wild places close to where people live. We call this nearby nature. To share our wild heritage with everybody, we need wild places where a family can access that area by public transit and have a picnic or an hour-long stroll instead of only providing access areas that are accessible by private car hundreds or thousands of miles away or where a multiple-day backpacking trip is the primary or even only way to experience the area. In Walden, Henry David Thoreau was the first to express this idea. He said, we need the tonic of wildness. And when you see the excitement in a child who's seeing a forest for the first time, you realize how universal this need is. And you can never again doubt the healing power of nature after you've listened to a group of returning vets who talk about the camaraderie they experienced on a mountain trip. It's powerful. Unfortunately, even as we continue to discover just how important wildness is, our wild places are facing their greatest threat ever. This brings me to the second challenge, one that nobody was talking about 50 years ago. It's climate change. Climate disruption is eroding the promise that we once made, that once we protect an area, it's protected forever. With a little bit more than one degree of Fahrenheit of warming, we're seeing seas rise and become more acidic. We're seeing the snowpack disappearing, temperatures soaring, the wildfire season lengthening, droughts lengthening and spreading across the country, and severe storms increasing. 
These changes are threatening urban areas and farms and ranches, but they're also threatening the foundation of our wilderness system. You don't have to look too hard or too far to find pretty grim predictions. Scientists project that Joshua trees won't be able to grow in Joshua, National, Joshua Tree National Park. We could lose up to 90% of our native amphibians and native trout and salmon. By the middle of the century, there may be no glaciers left in Glacier National Park in Montana. And so to address this, our first line of defense has to be to reverse the rise in carbon pollution. Unfortunately, climate disruption is already happening, as I mentioned, with just a little bit more than a degree of Fahrenheit. And further consequences are inevitable. The most governments around the world have set a goal of limiting warming to, limiting warming to two degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is simultaneously an ambitious and a reckless goal. It's ambitious because it means that in order to achieve that, almost 80% of all the coal, all the oil, all the gas that we know about has to stay in the ground. 80% of all of our reserves all around the world has to stay in the ground. And remember, each year, these industries are spending, last year, $650 billion was invested to find new sources of oil. 80% has to stay in the ground. More than half a trillion dollars was invested to find new sources of oil. So it's an ambitious goal to keep warming below 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. But it's also reckless when you consider that we've already seen these effects of 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit so far. We'll double that. If we're lucky, we'll limit warming to a little bit more than doubling that. So you can imagine the changes that are in store. This is a big reason why the Sierra Club, after 120 years of existence, we've made fighting climate change the top priority of our organization. We want to do, for clean energy, what John Muir did for wilderness protection 100 years ago. Last year, I was lucky enough to spend about two and a half weeks, uh, my wife and I and our little ones, we took a classic family camping trip, not unlike the trip that I took with my parents years ago. And we went through the American Wests. Um, it was a bit of a working vacation. It was a lot of a working vacation. Um, we were touring new areas that the Obama administration had declared as new national monuments, and we were touring areas that we were hoping that the, are hoping the administration would declare uh, as new national monuments over the next couple years. So we went through Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. We went hiking with veterans at Browns Canyon, Colorado. We met with members of the Havasupai tribe in Arizona. My daughter, Olivia, met a very special uh, llama named Diego at Rio Grande del Norte National, po National Monument in New Mexico. And um, sadly, our four-year-old little boy, Sebastian, sat on a cactus. <laughs> but other than that, it was a fantastic trip. There's one, one tiny bit of scenery that we didn't count on, which was when we were camping at a state park. It's called Dead Horse Point State Park in, uh, in Utah, right outside of Moab. And this is one of the most beautiful places in the world, right near Canyonlands. You can see Canyonlands. And what we didn't count on is that that night as we were setting up our tent, you could see flaring as they're fracking right outside the border, directly outside the border of the state park. So if the state park's border it was right here. The drilling site was 10 yards away from the border. So as we're setting up our tent, the sun's coming down. My daughter asked if we could go over to that campfire, because it was the biggest one that they could see around, because you could see the flaring. And remember, this is a park. I talked to the ranger. 50% of the people who visit the park are from out of state. Or excuse me. 50% of the people who visit the park are from outside the United States, outside the country. People from all around the world come to a place of global significance. They come thousands of miles, or maybe just from the United States, hundreds of miles. And they get there, and what they see is a giant fracking site. This is not just happening in Utah. This is happening in places all across the country. A lot of the oil and gas that's being extracted today, by definition, is coming from unconventional and extreme sources. 
mountaintop removal coal mining, deep water offshore drilling, fracking near our schools, in our forests, close to our wilderness areas, tar sands oil. But just like they say that it's darkest before the dawn, the good news is that there's a big reason why fossil fuel companies are so desperate to access these resources. They know that the writing is on the wall. What we're already seeing is the beginning of the end of our dependence on fossil fuels. The Sierra Club is part of a growing movement of organizations working to replace dirty coal with clean energy. Together, we've been able to stop the construction of 180 new coal-fired power plants from coast to coast. We've worked together to secure the retirement of more than 160 existing coal-fired power plants and to replace those plants with clean energy. It's a big part of the reason why the United States has reduced its greenhouse gas emissions over the last eight years more than any other country. And it's a big reason why we should have hope for our ability as a species to respond to this challenge. Because what we're seeing right now is we're seeing increasingly dirty fossil fuel projects being replaced by clean energy because it's cheaper. Here in Minnesota, a judge has mandated that the utilities increase the amount of solar because it's cheaper than gas and it's cheaper than coal. Austin Energy down in Texas recently doubled the amount of solar coming online because it's cheaper than gas and cheaper than coal. Excel in Colorado increased the amount of solar that they're bringing online because it's cheaper than gas, cheaper than coal. Utilities in Kansas, in Oklahoma, in Iowa, South Dakota are installing more wind. The Omaha, uh, the Omaha the utility in Omaha will increase the amount of wind coming online to 30% by the end of next year, and rates will decline. The states in the United States that use the most wind, their electricity costs have declined. Every other state, electricity costs are going up. Clean energy is coming online cheaper than gas and cheaper than coal. And so I want to end by just talking a little bit about why we do this. We're doing this as a big part of the reason to protect wilderness areas. We have, we're not only focused on climate change, we're doing a lot to preserve wilderness areas. There have been more than 250 million acres of parks and wilderness areas already established. We don't have another 120 years to address the challenge of climate change. Over the next couple years, we want to convince President Obama to use his executive authority to protect hundreds of thousands of acres of new national monuments before he leaves office. This includes large landscapes such as the Greater Canyonlands, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, the Grand Canyon Watershed, and just this month, we were able to celebrate the protection for a fantastic small section of the California coast near Mendocino, uh, where President Obama designated the Point Arena Stornetta Public Lands as part of the coastal, California Coastal National Monument. And as a local grassroots organization, we are very involved in many local campaigns, particularly the one that the North Star chapter of the Sierra Club is currently involved in and helping to lead against PolyMet which is a proposed open pit sulfide mine in Superior National Forest near the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness in Lake Superior, which for now is still the cleanest of the Great Lakes. So again, why are we doing all of this? With apologies to John Muir, I think that the most eloqu eloquent case for protecting wild places was made by the novelist and creative writing professor Wallace Stegner who was elected to the Sierra Club's Board of Directors in 1964, the same year that the Wilderness Act was passed. He wrote what's become known as the Wilderness Letter, and he said, quote, something will have gone out of us as a people if we ever let the remaining wilderness areas be destroyed. One means of sanity, one means of sanity is to retain a hold on the natural world, to remain, insofar as we can, good animals, Americans still have that chance, more than many peoples, for while we were demonstrating ourselves the most efficient and ruthless environment busters in history and slashing and burning and cutting our way through a wilderness continent, the wilderness idea was working on us. It remains in us as surely as Indian names remain on the land. 
We simply need that wild country available to us, even if we never do more than drive to its edge and look in, for it can be a means of reassuring ourselves of our sanity as creatures, a part of the geography of hope. I believe in the geography of hope, just like I believe in Thoreau's tonic of wildness. It's why working to save the wild places is more than just our responsibility. It's essential to our own sanity and salvation. Nature doesn't need people, but people need nature. Thanks, everybody. This is Minnesota Public Radio News presents. You're listening to Michael Boone, Executive Director of the Sierra Club, speaking live at Westminster Town Hall Forum in downtown Minneapolis. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Brune. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister of Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Executive Director of the Sierra Club, Michael Brune. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to invite the radio audience to join us here at Westminster Church for our next forum on Thursday, April 10, at noon, when Reza Aslan, the author of the best-selling book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, will be our speaker. For information on our current season, visit our website at westminsterforum.org. And now, Michael Brune, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question is about your own vocational movement. You began as a kind of a hands-on activist in Greenpeace and kind of a, an edgy environmental group, uh, went to Rainforest Action Network, and now have landed in the Sierra Club, perhaps the most well-established of the environmental groups in America today. Tell us how you made that transition in your own vocational life. Sure. Uh, well, I still am a hands-on activist as, as much as I can be. Uh, I think that the I'm inspired by a quote that Gandhi um, is attributed to, where he says that the difference between what we do and what we're capable of doing would suffice to solve most of the world's problems. And I think when it comes to environmental protection, we have the benefit of most people, I believe, down in the deepest part of their hearts agree with us. People are awfully fond of clean air. And they seem to hold clean water in high regard as well. And so they may or may not belong to one political party or another, they may live in different places, but we have common values. And so in my career with Greenpeace, Rainforest Action Network, the Sierra Club, what I believe the most in is in working with people across the country to advocate solutions that would solve some of our biggest environmental challenges. And the Sierra Club, as the largest grassroots environmental group, is probably the uh, one that's most equipped to do that. I want to ask you about the uh, divergent ways that environmental, environmental activism has taken in terms of politics in Europe and the U.S. There's quite an active green political movement in the, in the European countries, and that hasn't taken root here. Could you describe perhaps the difference in, in the way the uh, American environmentalists are, are engaged politically from European? Sure. Well, there's, there's more of a tendency for, towards multiple party participation in many countries in Europe, whereas here in the United States, mostly there's a, a two-party system, and it's been very difficult to break beyond that. And so uh, what you find most people who call themselves environmentalists uh, occupying, let's say, both the Democratic Party or to a, a lesser extent the Republican Party, and looking to inculcate their values into both parties. And I think part of the challenge that we face is um, in presenting environmental issues not as a series of things that we can't do, not solely as a series of projects that we have to fight, but things that we want instead. I think this is probably one of the top challenges of the environmental movement is to advocate for and stand for and clarify the values of what it is that we want in addition to the things that we don't want. And doing so will help us greatly to uh, win more supporters in both parties. Mr. Brune, as an environmentalist, I can understand your position on fossil fuels. However, you must see that alternatives such as wind and solar won't fill the void for our consumption of energy. That leaves us looking at nuclear. What is your position on nuclear energy? Au contraire. So 
Um, okay, so we should start with the facts here for all of us. I took a plane to get here. It burned fossil fuels. Uh, I drove in a car throughout parts of Minneapolis last night and this morning. It burned fossil fuels. The lights that are on, I don't know where your power comes from, but many people when they use electricity, it comes from fossil fuels. We have to find a way to get off fossil fuels as quickly as we can, but it's not going to happen by the end of the day tomorrow, won't happen by the end of the month. I don't think it's going to happen in 2014. It's going to take some time. It doesn't mean we can't face the challenge. It doesn't mean we can't be real with each other and say, burning fossil fuels, which we've done as a society, which we've done in this country for upwards of 150 years, has uh, created uh, an amazing record of development. And now we know that it's problematic, and we have to switch fossil fuels and nuclear power. What we do know is that the amount of clean energy that's beginning to come online in some states in the US and in other countries, particularly in Europe, offer the promise of creating a prosperous, just society that is powered by clean energy, right? So South Dakota gets 27% of their electricity from sun and wind, mostly wind. Iowa gets 26% of their power from solar and wind. Again, mostly wind. In California, my adopted home state, will be well over 33% by the end of this decade coming from solar and wind, a large part of that solar. Germany is already at about 30% of their power coming from solar and wind. Portugal is over 50% of their power coming from solar and wind. Denmark will be at over 50% by, by the end of this decade. So all of this uh, doesn't yet speak to the question, but it shows that clean energy is growing, and the promise, the pledge that environmentalists have made for about four decades is coming to be true, which is that as more and more clean energy comes online, the costs will drop and eventually we'll hit a tipping point where clean energy is cheaper than fossil fuels and way cheaper than nuclear power. The Sierra Club is opposed to nuclear power plants because of a basic framework that we apply to all energy resources, whether it's coal, oil, gas, nuclear, geothermal, solar, wind, energy efficiency. You can put it to four basic tests. One is, what's the cleanest? Second is, what can come online most quickly? What, what are technologies that can be used today? Third is, what is safest? I hope I don't have a Rick Perry moment. What's clean, what's cheap, what's safe? Renewable. What's cheap, what's, what's cheap, what's clean? What's the safest and what can come online the most quickly? I forget which ones I repeated multiple times, but those are the four. I did mention all four. It, this happens to me in sermons all the time. That's great. But I want to go on the record. I remembered all four. So, um, when you rank nuclear power on those four criteria, it comes in dead last every time. So why would we invest public or private resources into a form of energy that's more expensive than solar and wind? When solar and wind put more people to work, don't pollute our air, there's no proliferation risks, and it addresses climate change. And when you combine clean energy resources, they can provide power on a 24-hour cycle, particularly when combined with storage. Is there such a thing as clean coal? Yeah, good question. Uh, I do think that there's clean coal. I should say I also believe in leprechauns and uh, <laughs> the Easter Bunny. Um, no, I don't know if sarcasm translates over the radio, but no, there is, there is no such thing as clean coal because coal is dirty from beginning to end. The process of mining coal, whether you're ripping apart mountains uh, or you're risking the health of miners, is inc incredibly risky and incredibly dirty. The process of transporting that coal, there are documented health effects from the coal dust coming off of trains across the country. When you burn the coal, burning of coal contributes to four out of the five leading causes of death in the United States. The, and after the coal is burned, the coal ash then has to be stored somewhere. There are 1,500 coal ash dump sites across the country. And if you live within two miles of one, the health effect is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. So no, coal is not clean and it's not necessary, particularly when you have energy sources that are cheaper than gas and cheaper than coal.
Can the fossil fuel industries have some role in moving us to, towards sustainable energy? Is there a way to make them partners in what we're trying to do with uh, more renewable resources, cleaner sources of fuel? Yeah, absolutely. This is not something where um, one side necessarily has to win over the other. Uh, if you look particularly at utilities, these are the uh, enterprises that simply provide power to people. If you look at the transportation company, automakers, they provide mobility. So utilities should not care where the electricity, where the power comes from, whether it's from nuclear power or coal or gas or solar and wind. And when we're able to make a case, as we are today, that clean energy will reduce costs in many places, but it can improve reliability and at the same time put more people to work and solve many of the common social challenges that we face in terms of climate change, uh, then it's a better solution. And the same is true for automakers. When we can show that we can meet the needs of the marketplace through different options, we should be able to evolve as, as a society. Um, it may be true that uh, some of the executives who are embedded within the coal or oil and gas industries might fight us for a little bit longer. They may be the last to convert, but we're going to build a, an economy that is powered by clean energy. It's going to happen in the 21st century. The only question is how quickly do we get there? How much more do we lose by delaying? And as we make this transition, broadening the benefits so that it includes more people than in previous years. Is a carbon tax a key strategy to combat climate change? Any specific recommendations or comments on carbon tax? Yeah, absolutely. So the Sierra Club is, is supportive of uh, a number of different ways to put a price on carbon which is another way of saying you want to internalize the cost of pollution. Right now, uh, across the economy, companies can dump as much carbon pollution, methane, carbon dioxide, dump as much of that into our atmosphere as they would like. There's no restrictions, there's no economic penalty, and so this is just basic common sense policy making, that if you make societal ills more expensive, it provides incentives to shift. And so a carbon tax could be the best way to go. And the Sierra Club is supportive of the idea. Like any policy, you have to get the details right. We wouldn't want to see a carbon tax that penalizes poor people. We wouldn't want to see a carbon tax that provides a drain on the economy. We wouldn't want to see a carbon tax that actually didn't work and didn't provide the incentives. But conceptually, the Sierra Club is, is strongly supportive. These are political questions we're discussing today. Can you name three current Republican leaders, and I would add three Democratic leaders, who are strong and sincere environmental advocates? Who are your, the champions on both sides of the aisle? Give us two or three names with whom the Sierra Club would work. Sure. Uh, so Democratic leaders, uh, there are plenty of them, uh, many of them from uh, here in Minnesota. So uh, your governor is, is a great leader, has been promoting clean energy and uh, community-based uh, wind energy development, energy efficiency. Uh, Senator Franken uh, and Klobuchar have been fantastic leaders, uh, both of whom spoke out last week at the all-night climate uh, slumber party that was held in the Capitol. Um, and you know, we can go on and on. There's an increasing amount of champions at the state legislative level, gubernatorial level, and in Congress, people who are realizing that we have an obligation to act on climate change and there's an opportunity to switch to clean energy. Um, I, you know, I could be candid. On, with the Republican Party right now, it's, it's increasingly difficult. This is an issue that has become more politicized, more polarized, and even people like John McCain or Lindsey Graham who have been strong on this issue in the past uh, are not as willing to stand up um, because of leadership uh, and the, the prevailing attitude within, uh, particularly within Congress right now. But I, I, I should emphasize that this, this will change. This is a, a temporary affliction that can't last, in part because the effects of a disruptive climate are being felt by everybody across the country in the form of drought, severe storms, and wildfires. And the benefits of clean energy are felt all across the country. 70%, 71% actually, of all of the wind that's installed in the United States is installed in Republican districts. 
So it's only a matter of time before there's stronger bipartisan support to the solutions of a problem that right now many Republicans don't believe actually exists. Northern Minnesota has one of the world's largest untouched deposits of copper and nickel lying beneath the forests and lakes of that area of our state. An intense debate is happening across Minnesota on the future of mining in that area. How have copper nickel mines affected the environment in other states and where environmentalists have wrestled with this issue elsewhere? How have they addressed the question of jobs versus uh, clean environment? Well, what we've seen with, with copper mines and sulfide mines in other parts of the country is a broad swath of environmental destruction. These are, these are projects that often when they're advertised are talked about as being safe and secure, uh, as a way of promoting good jobs uh, and uh, ways in which any environmental damage can be minimized. And the reality has been the opposite. And so the Sierra Club is opposed, um, and we're, as I mentioned, leading the fight against Polymet. But more broadly, I think um, what we want to do for projects like this, whether it's a mining project or a fossil fuel drilling project, is to offer something substantial in return. And so uh, to that regard, it's probably good to talk about uh, pipelines as well. You know, we're having this big fight about the Keystone XL pipeline, and there's a big fight on the expansion of the Alberta Clipper pipeline. This, these are single pipelines. That would, one of them would take oil from Alberta all the way through the country, a leaky pipeline carrying oil that is more toxic, more corrosive, more difficult to clean up, more carbon intensive, all the way through the country. Most of the oil would then be exported. The Alberta Clipper is a pipeline that already exists, and it would be expanded. Uh, when, when I say expanded, what often that means is that the intensity of the flow would increase. And to put this in perspective, when you fill up air in your car tire, you fill it up to about 35 or maybe four, up as much as 40 pounds per square inch. The oil coming through this pipeline is at 1,000 pounds per square inch. So it doesn't leak, it bursts. And it's harder to clean up. So in our opposition to both projects, we have to advocate for something more. And so we have worked with unions, we have worked with the labor movement more broadly to talk about all of the water pipelines that are leaking across the country, all of the natural gas pipelines that are leaking methane across the country. These are pipelines that can be repaired, replaced, put people to work, protect our air and our water, make our use of oil or water and gas more efficient in the process, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and help the economy. So I, I mention this as an example of um, the same issues that are true with the copper mine in that we are opposed to certain projects because we don't think that they're in society's interests, but there are a lot of ways to promote development instead. And finally, I'll say, if you agree, there is a hearing uh, that would be held um, on the Alberta Clipper right here in Minneapolis at the Public Utilities Commission on Thursday, April 3rd. Uh, there's a rally at 1.30, there's a hearing at 3 o'clock, and we need you there. If you care about clean air and clean water, please show up and bring your friends and your family and your neighbors. Be activists in action, that's good. That's right. Here's a question from one of the students in the audience. And by the way, the student also does a fairly good rendering of you here, Michael, on the back of the, the card. Oh, nice. Not bad, is it? I, yeah. I'll give this to you afterwards. Well done, the, the artists among us. In our environmental science class, our teacher has said that one of the biggest threats to the world's ecology is land usage in the form of habitat destruction and unsustainable farming practices. How do you think we can work together as a global community to essentially rewrite and rework the damaging and unsustainable practices often stemming from greed of money? Well, it's a great question. Great drawing and a great question. Um, it's, it's a challenge in part because some of the issues that we work on that I've talked about, coal plants, they're pretty easy, relatively speaking, because there's one decision maker, one CEO of a company or one governor of a state who has, or one state legislature, that can impact the way in which power is produced across an entire region. When you talk about land use changes, the problem is more complex because you've got thousands of landowners. Or when you look outside the U.S., you have land that isn't actually owned by any government entity. Um, and you have the rule of law that's subdued. So uh, 
for example, in Brazil and Indonesia, these are the countries that are three and four in terms of greenhouse gas emissions around the world, uh, they're producing so much carbon pollution because of the clearing of their rainforests, uh, often for plantations of palm oil or soybeans. And it's hard to stop that in part because uh, the rule of law doesn't exist in those countries. Here in the United States, what we, what we need to try to do is to is to present options in a way that appeals to people, uh, individual landowners' financial demands and their ethical values at the same time. To be able to say with clarity and without exaggeration, here is the impact of the choices that you're currently making regarding land use. And here is what could be done differently. Here's a way in which you can maintain uh, your, your profit margins, maintain your ownership of your, your home or your ranch or your farm, but do so in a way that doesn't diminish the values throughout the region. Um, and so we, we should never shy away, as those who care about the environment, of presenting these issues in clear and fair moral terms. But increasingly, we have to be able to say, here's how the, the choices that you have in front of you shouldn't involve financial sacrifice, that there's a way to do well by doing good. Time for just a very quick response to the last question. What do you want to, want to say to the students and the audience here and listening on the radio about the need for their leadership in the environmental movement? Great, thanks. Uh, and again, thanks everybody for coming here today. The final thing I would say to the students is don't let anybody tell you that we can't do this. Don't give in to despair. Don't think about climate change as uh, a threat that we can't actually address. That we have the ability as a species uh, to solve this problem. We have the technology that is at our disposal. We have the will, I believe, within each of us, um, and that will can translate into political will. We're going to build, we have, my wife and I, we have little children, as I mentioned, and they are going to grow up in a world that increasingly isn't dependent on dirty fuels. Their smartphones, a couple decades from now, is going to be powered with energy that is safe and secure and sustainable. And so for people who are in college today, what I would say is that these are victories that you'll be a part of that will endure forever. Once we get off coal, we're not going to go back. Once we stop fracking, we're not going to say we want to poison our watershed more. Let's, let's go back to the old way. Let's have more mercury in our tuna fish. Let's blow off mountains, because that used to be fun. Once we get off fossil fuels and nuclear power, We'll create a society that's powered by clean energy forever, and you can make it happen. So Thank you, everybody. Michael Broom. Thank you.